Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode 108. I sincerely hope everybody's having a great week out there. We are halfway through the month of September. Fall is upon us. The weather is starting to change. I'm sending Good thoughts out to uh, everybody on the Gulf Coast. You got a big hurricane coming uh, and everybody's saying it's going to be really bad. Uh, Got a special thought for all my friends out on the West Coast that's dealing with the wildfires. I hope everybody's staying safe, staying healthy, and uh, all this will be over with really, really soon. Hey, we've got a great episode for you today. I am about to be joined by the great Michael Bland of Soul Asylum. Michael, as you know, also spent uh, several years playing with Prince uh, and the the iteration of Prince's band called the New Power Generation. So we're really excited to bring that to you right after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned in our intro, we're about to be joined by the great Michael Bland. Michael is just an absolutely legendary drummer uh, in the Minneapolis, Minnesota music scene. Uh, As I mentioned again in the intro, uh, spent several years with Prince and he started playing with Prince at a very, very early age. So his talent was apparent as a very young man. Uh, For the past several years, he has been a member of one of my favorite bands, Soul Asylum. 
and uh, just doing really, really good work with them. He's I, there's just so much stuff on his resume. It's it's too numerous to mention here. Uh, but we had a really good conversation about his early years, uh, you know, about his years with Prince that I thought were just super insightful. Um, and we had a pretty frank discussion as well about race in the music industry and in this country. Um, Michael is very active and he has a very strong voice uh, with, you know, social justice. Uh, so I thought that was important to bring to you as well. So I think you're going to get a whole lot out of this. So please help me welcome to the drum shuffle, the great Michael Bland. Good afternoon, Michael. How's it going, my friend? I'm doing all right, man. Just hanging inside. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all we can't. That's all we're allowed to do right now is just kind of hang out inside, right? I mean, <laughs> basically, I, I, I mean, I've since uh, our tour, uh, Soul Asylum's tour for the new record, "Hurry Up and Wait," um, started on February 10th, and it was supposed to go till like late March, but um. <laughs> We we played the gig in Los Angeles on like the 13th or the 12th of March, and that night I heard the club owner talking to a staff saying this and that about well apparently this virus thing is spreading, and we had been on the prevo man we've been on the bus so we were we were living this sheltered life uh, you know on this on this steel tube <laughs> and we didn't really know what was going on people would call home and but nobody had any clear answers to any questions. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and even now, they're still trying to figure out everything there is to know about COVID. But um, just in that night, like we finished the gig, then we heard that South by Southwest was off. And then you know, several of our gigs that we had come out the next week were either canceled or were going to be rescheduled. Like we basically played, played LA, drove to San Diego. We were supposed to play the Belly Up Tavern the next night. Got to, got to uh, San Diego to find out the gig was off. So the bus just turned around, got on the freeway, and came back to Minneapolis. <laughs> I step off the bus and get into the, the, the family van. My wife starts telling me, you're about to be in quarantine for 12 days. <laughs> like, what, what happened? And so she just gives me the rundown. And she's, we're driving home. And, oh, man, I'll never forget it. It was, it was just this very gray day. And there was hardly any traffic. And I was like, I felt like Omega Man and and Charles Heston. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just so bizarre. I mean, we all miss live music so much, but. Um, you, you know, I, I know that you're keeping as busy as you want to be, and I know you're about to get really busy. But before we get into all of that, if you're cool with it, I want to go back to your early years. I want you to tell all of our listeners how, you know, young Michael Bland got into drumming to begin with? Wow. I guess, you know, um, even as a kid, my, my sisters used to, used to try to confuse me. The old Motown 45 singles that were like a dark purple. And then you got the silver and the, um, and the, like the, um, what is it called? Like they, they, there was a star where Detroit was located on, on the Michigan map, like the old Motown records that had the map of, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I was probably two or three and I couldn't, I couldn't read, but somehow they'd always like say, you want to listen to this one or that one? And I guess every time they, they let me choose, <laughs> I think I chose, uh, Superstition, or Stevie Wonder. They didn't know how I did it. I just knew, like, guess what? 
I don't know if I recognize the shapes of the letters, but I, I mean, I couldn't read. And they, they just, they were, I mean, they, they were stumped by it all the time. But you always chose superstition, no matter how we try to confuse you. Um, that's so, awesome. I mean, I guess, yeah, and that's really, I mean, my real love of music just started, you know, as, as an observer, as a listener. And, you know, there's a, there's a piano in the house. It was never in tune, but I'd bang on that thing. And I, I, I learned kind of to pick my ear, and then my dad noticed some aptitude, so he sent me for lessons on piano. But um, it turned out that my ear was so good that I, I didn't even, I was faking that like I was reading. I actually have perfect pitch, and nobody told me what that was until I was in high school. <laughs> I thought everybody knew the notes and that. Anybody who didn't was just either stupid or wasn't trying hard enough. <laughs> so it took my band director, Dr. Denny Malmberg, in high school, who uh, he asked somebody in in, uh, in the band, in the concert band, he said, play, play a C natural. And they played like a B instead. I said, that's B. And he looked up and said, how do you know that? <laughs> that's awesome. He, yeah, he proceeded to go around the rest of the, the, of the instruments. And, and whisper in their ears to, to, to play certain notes. He said, what's that note? Uh, that, that's A flat. And he moved to like the, 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 the um, French horns. What note is that? Oh, that's D. And then he went back to the, you know, to the conductor stand and said, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Bland has one of the rarest <laughs> conditions musically known to man. He has perfect pitch. That's amazing. Pitch. Yeah, and then he would just kind of test me against, you know, like the strobe tuner. He'd, he'd, he'd whisper, like, pull out. You know, what's that? Flat is shot. Flat. Like, he really put me through the paces because I guess he didn't know many people who had it. So, it's, uh, I, I, I guess, I'm saying all that, I skipped uh, a great deal in, in getting to that band story. But, uh, really... Music was all around me, man. It just—I uh, I tried other instruments before, but drumming just stuck with me. My my dad saw that I, I I showed an interest again with the lessons. He found me a teacher. This particular guy, his name is Floyd Thompson. He's taught a lot of great drummers uh, in the Midwest. Uh, Gordy Knudsen, who uh, uh, I think he might still be playing with Steve Miller, but he used to play with Ben Sivan back in the day. Great, great drummer. He was also a student of Floyd Thompson. And um, uh, Floyd told my dad, before I even picked up a stick, he said, if he doesn't have any aptitude for the instrument, I'm not going to take him. I don't, I don't need to waste my time. So had I not had some sort of, uh, of been imbued with some sort of, you know, uh, gift for uh, independence and, and rhythm, uh, that could have been the end of my drum career. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, what a waste that would have been. I mean... I, you know, you were, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I don't want to skip over a whole lot of stuff here, but you started playing with Prince at like 18, 19 years old, something like that? I met him when I was 18. I joined the band uh, the summer of the next year. I, I said, he officially like called the house and my dad answered the phone and it was, <laughs> uh, it's, can I speak to Michael, please? Oh my, my God. My dad just kind of. Looked at me like uh, I, I like I don't really know. It's somebody strange on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> it turned out to be Prince, and I was actually I was um I think I was getting ready to start uh, my my next year in college. I was I was at a Lutheran college, kind of close by the house, and um and I remember uh, man, I was so uh, kind of 
I mean, looking back, I guess I was sort of naive and kind of underwhelmed. I mean, I knew who Prince was, and I liked some of his music, but I really wasn't starstruck when I met him. Sounds <laughs> strange, I know. I was like, just some weird guy that wears purple all the time in Minneapolis, oh, right? <laughs> I knew more than that, and I did have an appreciation for, for his records. But, you know, growing up, it's like, you, you know, in high school, dudes would, you know, people would, would, I'd never seen him perform, and, uh, I remember this guy in like my English class said, you know, that guitar solo on Let's Go Crazy. I heard Prince had to score the tape down because he can't play. <laughs> so, you, you know, you get your head yeah. up with all these like stories and these, all these hater stories and whatnot. I'm like, well, wow, maybe this is all studio tricks. I didn't really realize how bad he was until I got in the same room with him and he was just like checking out his guitar rig. We were rehearsing um, a, a song called Electric Chair to play on Saturday Night Live, the 15-year anniversary, 15-year anniversary show. And he really didn't let loose until that moment. He was like, he had a new guitar tech, he was a guy named Dallas Shue, who had worked with uh, The Edge from U2. And he had set the rig up, and Prince came walking in, I was just kind of sitting by, back by the drums a little uh, earlier than everybody, and Prince started playing, and he hit the distortion and kind of went for it. And, I, and, and the, uh, in the rehearsal room, there's a, there's a mirror, like you're performing into the mirror so everybody can see, you know, you can see yourself while you're performing and everybody else can see, you know, like it's, you know, choreography and whatnot. It's good for that type of thing. Right. And Prince have to look in, in, in the mirror and see me behind him kind of like with my jaw dropped, like, wow. <laughs> and he stopped playing and he turned around and said, what? I, was, I just shook my head. I didn't say anything. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I, I can't even imagine, and, and you know, no matter what training or, or what gigs you've done up to that point, it's got to be a surreal feeling to be, a, you know, a 19-year-old kid and you're in Prince's band, which, you, you know, at that time, I think he kind of renamed the band the, the New Power Generation, right? Uh, this was slightly before that. He okay. had just come off the, uh, the Love Sexy Tour in 1988. Okay. And he was back in town and, you know, all the musicians that I knew were talking about the fact that Dennis Prince has fired his whole band and he's going to start, he's going to put together a new band. I was like, oh, well, good for him, I guess. I didn't think nothing of it until he came walking into this club I was playing at with this band called Dr. Mambo's Combo, who was the, uh, I think we've held the longest house gig in the history of the state. The band's been together for 32 years, I think, 32 or 33 I started with them uh, in 1987. Wow. Seventeen. Now, not to interrupt, but you guys are still doing a residency at at Bunkers, right? Well, we're supposed to be, but I mean, the club's still close shut down right October until August, and then I guess we're going to see. But yeah, the 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 band has kept going all the way up until that. My drum tech, Pistol Pete, he subs for me when I'm not there. I was on tour, so. he was holding the gig down and I was out doing my thing. And, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen those people since I left town in February. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, yeah. so Prince comes in to see you guys play and that's how he learns of you and, and your abilities. Well, not exactly. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to leave details out, but you keep making me, making me put them back in. <laughs> what literally happened was Dr. Mambo's combo had a house gig on Monday nights at Bunker. Still does. If they ever open again. And, um, but they had recently taken another gig on Wednesdays at a different club 
And Prince happened to go into this other club. And Gordy, Gordy Knutson, Gordy Knutson was, was actually playing with the band because I had a different gig on Wednesdays. And, but uh, Prince recognized Margaret Cox, the lead singer from Dr. Mimo's Combo, as Tamara from Tamara and the Scene, who, who had a 13, 13 countries, number one hit in 13 countries, called Everybody Dance. Jesse Johnson, uh, from the time, had produced that record and okay. had Margaret under contract. Okay. So um, he recognizes her and kind of motions for her to come over because he recognizes her, and, and uh, uh, they go off to the limo and talk. And he's like, oh, wow, you got a really good band. And she was like, oh, you should hear this, this drummer that plays with us. He's, he's a young guy. He's not, he's not here tonight, but you should hear this guy. And Prince was like, can you he really play? She said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> so the, the next Monday, Prince shows up. Like with the whole band, everybody files into to bunkers. Like the entire Love Sexy band, whoever was still in town. You know, they regalia. They like dressed up like they go hit the stage. And um, they come in and, and hang out, and I got to meet everybody. And uh, and um, Prince jumps up to sit in. And it's a slow blues, and as you know, a lot of drummers, they don't like playing it slow, you yeah. know? Yeah. Like if you want to really see what a drummer is made of, make them play a ballad, yeah. you know? And tell them, don't you move. Stay in time, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And um, I, I, it was like a slow blues, and I, I was solid as a rock right then. I was, all I've been doing was, was, was practicing to a click and just trying to get my pocket down. So I was particularly strong at that time. And, uh, I, you know, Prince, just, I, I, what I'd heard was Prince just kept his hands on my, he kept his, uh, his eyes on my hands the whole time. Pretty much. He was playing guitar, but he was really just kind of looking and listening. And um, the sound guy comes up to me after after Prince leaves and everybody the, the night's over. He says, "Dude, Prince was Prince was into you, man. You're gonna get a job with Prince." Like, yeah, right. Whatever, man. <laughs> I start tearing my gear down, and you know, <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, he wasn't wrong. He it, it just kind of a. I kept hearing that actually for the next couple of months. People kept just kind of walking up to me saying, "Hey, I heard Prince really, really digs your plan, man. You're probably going to get a job." And I just, I just didn't believe it. Wow, man, that's that's yeah. incredible. And not only did you get a job, you, you got a job that you held for almost a decade. You know, with seven years straight, and then, um, and then I started recording with them again, uh, like in the late. 90, like 98 or 99, I played on a song called Baby Knows on the Rave to the Joy Fantastic uh, record. Wow, man. I mean, that's so just... That was, we, we're in between, you know, it's like, well, you, I was, I was kind of hot and bothered because we got fired and the way we got fired and so on and so forth. And, you know, he, you know, he certainly definitely stopped coming down to the club because we just kind of, you know, we were dis disassociated at that point. But, um, uh, Morris Hayes actually called me and said, hey, man, listen, you know, the man's got this song called Baby Knows, and, you know, the the men, the men machine is, you know, it's working, it's doing its thing, but I, I told him already, man, if we could get Bland on this track, it'd be hot. So, nice. <laughs> would you be willing to come in, man? And it's like, well, he's not going to be acting funny, is he? No, 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 man. <laughs> All right. So I went out there just on that phone call, and, uh, you know, and we were, you know, a, a little awkward at first, but, you know, uh, we, we, we warmed up. Uh, it, by the time the session was over, we were, we were, we were friends again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and, and you know, I, I don't want to talk out of school about Prince, you know, but I, I mean, he's just such an icon 
And I know that you circled the globe with him, you know, a, a few different times. You you played all over Earth with him. I mean, what must that be like for a young man in his early 20s and you're on, you know, several world tours with one of the most iconic pop stars of all time? Did you I mean, were you in disbelief or were you just kind of caught up in the moment? I didn't have time to be emotional about it. Um, I I didn't even really have time to uh, to gain perspective because it's such a. uh, Subjective process. <laughs> your yeah. your nose is to the grindstone every day, and whenever you pick up a pair of sticks, you're supposed to kill it. So, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? So yeah. There's no real you 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 focused on being, you know, be, being the most vicious cat anybody has ever seen. If they happen to come to the show, you're supposed to be the baddest. So, you know, there's the, I mean, the, that's a lot of those. Sure, he left you know left some big bumps to fill. Yeah, you're right on, right on. I mean, I couldn't come in stepping light after Sheila had been in there, man. Sheila was fucking shot. So, you know, I I mean, I really was focused on proving that that I deserved to be there, Um, which meant, uh, you know, no mistakes. You know, and if I made one, I never made the same one twice. You know, I like, I really, I needed his respect to to deal with the, I mean, the, the, with the, uh, uh, the antagonistic nature of the job. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, sure. And, and, and that stuff's kind of legendary in the business that, you know, Prince was hard on his guys, you know, but, yeah. mm-hmm. but he expected perfection, like you said, and, and he didn't just expect it from all of you. He expected it from himself as well. I mean, the, the man had a standard, you, you know, and, and you had to fit that standard to, to fit in, I guess. It's hundred. You're hundred percent correct. I was just telling somebody that the other day on a uh, uh, Facebook Live broadcast I do every Tuesday called Music Politics, and um, actually uh, our guest uh, from from this past Tuesday, Maya Winston, was talking about, you know, uh, it's you have all the choices in the world, but unless until you focus, you know, until you put your whole self into something, you you'll never know what you can really accomplish, you know. And then we started talking about that. And I was, I was disappointed to her that Prince had high standards for everybody and himself. And really, you know, it's, it's, um, it, whatever you're suffering for in life better be worth it. That's all. Yeah. That's all I was trying to get across is that I, I, I put, I, I gave him my life for seven years. Really? Like I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't plan to, I couldn't go on vacation. I couldn't, you know what I mean? I had no time to myself. And I actually, I, I was married in 93. And, you know, I might as well have been a bigamist. I was, I was hardly ever home. I was up to, I mean, I lived 15 minutes away from Paisley. But, um, uh, Paisley Park. But, um, you know, my wife didn't see me a whole lot. And I, I mean, I was just 15 minutes up the road. <laughs> yeah. You know, I spent years in that building. You know what I mean? Like years of time in rehearsal, in video shoots, you know, uh, uh, doing shows even. We, we played, we played all the time at Paisley Park. He'd invite, you know, he'd put the, send the word out around, you know, 10 or 11 at night. You know, we'd go on around 2 o'clock in the morning. We'd been, uh, mind you, we'd already been rehearsing from noon until probably that time, until about 10. So I, I'd come home, shower, you know, 
change clothes, turn around and go back to Paisley Park to, 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 you know, to play from 2 to 6, maybe. 2, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Wow. And, and then start, yeah, start again tomorrow. Exactly. Hey, no matter how late we played, be, be able to what noon. We do right back to it, dude. Wow. So, that, that, you know, when I try to explain to people, like, the reason I'm so proficient is because, <laughs> is because <laughs> I, I, I went to, it was like going to boot camp for a musician. Well, you, you basically lived in a woodshed for seven years. That's right. And only let out to, to tour and, and uh, you know, <laughs> maybe for a photo shoot or to, or to shoot a video. Sometimes we go to L.A. to do that, but we just do that and turn right around and come back and get right back in that shed, man. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's like me and, and people would ask all the time, how do you play so tight with the electronics? Do you have a sequencer? I'm like, no, but it still, but it still won't let you use a sequencer. He, he'll be the last person to use a sequencer because he wants to be able to go where he feels like at a drop, you know, at the drop of a dime. So I had to have have the the tempos in my bloodstream. I, you know, I had to, I, I really had to have. Uh, I was spinning plates, dude. I mean, it, it was. It, I was drumming was part of it, but I was also, you know, triggering really important samples. And some songs we we'd use sample vocals on that, but I mean, um, but like freehand. Like, so if the, if the guy, if Morris happened to fire a sample slightly forward or slightly ahead or behind in time, I'd have to figure out a way to adjust the time a little bit so nobody would notice. Yeah. So, you know, he, Chris really figured out, like, what I was doing once I was gone. And that method of, he had to change his whole way of working <laughs> after, I, after I was out of the bed because I was, I was, so involved, and I never said a word and complained about anything. He, if he said he wanted it done, I'd get it done. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I you know, I know that he was one of those artists that you know, as a drummer, you would spend a lot of time chasing him around, you know, like tonight, the arrangement, you know, the, the, the solo section is going to be 32 bars instead of, you know, 24 bars. And it's your job sure. to follow me kind of thing, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, literally it's pretty much the whole band had to be, it, it was like, he had to, it was like, he could, he, if, if he had his way, he would have cloned himself. <laughs> it <would've> been, <laughs> he said that one night after a gig in Japan. He's like, boom. It's only way it sounds better if I cloned cloned myself. <laughs> Y'all so tight, so tight. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I'm going to clone yeah. myself. That's what, kind of, what kind of backwards compliment is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Well, I mean, I, after your time playing with Prince, I mean, I, I know that, you know, obviously when your name has been associated with such an iconic artist, you know, your phone's going to ring off the hook, I would assume, you know. Um, and I know that you did a lot of stuff. And, you know, before we started into the interview, you know, you were talking about how you you know, spent a lot of time in Europe. You know, you were a musical director for an Italian artist for a while, but your recording credits are just so varied and so vast. You know, talk a little bit about the time after the Prince gig and and all the stuff you were doing kind of between that and, and where you are today. Well, okay. I, I mean, it's a, uh, first off, you would think the phone would be ringing off the hook, but not really. It didn't. I think a lot of people who would have liked 
to hire me or any of the other cats. Thought we were probably above their pay grade. Like what? Like they couldn't afford us. I I I remember spending a lot of time in, in also in Los Angeles, just trying to just trying to get in. You know, just trying to find a way in. And I managed a few sessions, but really, it's like I started auditioning for uh, for for different bands and whatnot, and it's, it's it almost always came down to the money. Like I don't know what they thought I was gonna do. I'm like, oh, well, they, they only got 1500 you know. They didn't only pay 1500 a week, and they, they were pretty sure you wouldn't go for it. So they, they went with this other guy who, like, wait a minute. I'm making no money right now. What makes you <laughs> I, I, I'd be happy to take $1,500. <laughs> well, I, yeah, we got the other guy now. So uh, yeah. there was a lot of that. Like, uh, you know, a lot of people were afraid uh, that, that we'd break the bank. Um, so I had to, you know, out, outrun the stigma. Uh, so and, and that took some time. Although right out of the gate, um, immediately after Prince fired us, uh, I got a phone call from Paul Westerberg, and uh, <laughs> I picked up the phone and said, "Hello," he said, hey, "You got fired." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you want to go on tour with me? I'm touring this summer. Huh? Yes, let's do it. So. That was the first thing that I did. I, I actually met Paul at Paisley Park in Studio B. He was um, doing overdubs and finishing uh, his second solo record called Eventually. And uh, we were shooting a video or something out on the soundstage, and I walked by, and um, uh, one, of the, one of the engineers, the assistant engineers, was, was sitting in front of the Studio B door. I said, what are you doing? He said, I can't let nobody in here. I said, well, who's in there? Oh, Paul Westerberg. Oh, oh. So I just acted like I didn't care, and I kept on wandering. <laughs> and the dude must have gone to the bathroom, and I came back around the door, and it was I just went in and just started talking to Paul. And I was, I mean, I was, we've been shooting videos, so I was kind of in, like, you know, like stadium rocking gear. Yeah. It's like, whoa. He starts checking out my clothes, and we sit down and start talking about, you know, nothing, nothing musical. It was fashion and so on and so forth, and, uh, and and he just kind of says, hey, you know, I got a couple of songs that uh that I need to re- replace the drum machine on. Uh, one's called Century, and uh, uh, do you think would you want to play? And yeah, so I had my drum tech. Uh, Magoo drags like a kick drum, a snare, a hi hat, a floor tom, and like a crash cymbal in. And he's like, perfect. You don't need any more gear for this. And uh, so I did that. And then the next day, he asked me to play on another song called Time Flies Tomorrow. And uh, we got on pretty good. I, I love Paul. I, I, actually, I need to give him a call. I haven't called him to see uh, how he's handling all, all of this insanity. But um, uh, so we toured, had a great time. Uh, right after that, I, I, I got a job um, to work with a French artist named Franz Gall, who uh, died a couple of years ago. But, uh, man, she was... She was incredible. She's one of the one of the nicest people I ever met. So me and Sonny, uh, Sonny was the bass player with Prince when, when I was in the band. Uh, me and Sonny uh, get called to work with Erica's. Uh, I mean, they wanted the bass player and the drummer who were a team. And um, so we go do that. We toured with her. Uh, that would have been fall of 90, 90, 96, yeah. And then we went right back after like uh, Christmas and everything, and did like a uh, televised event on I think it was like M6, 
Okay. And, uh, it's, it's, it's on the internet if anybody wants to see it. It's, uh, it's on YouTube. And um, uh, after that, I came home and um, I went... I went back to LA and uh turns out that Shaka Khan was uh working with Prince at the time. And she came she went to Paisley apparently and um and Kirk Johnson, who was a, a friend of mine, who was the drummer who came in after me, was playing with him. And Shaka said, Whatever that big old drummer you had And <laughs> <laughs> so he doesn't play with me anymore. She, and she you know, had her tour manager root around and get my phone number. And uh, I think I must have left the number in L.A. on my outgoing message. Because then they called me there. And, uh, yeah, Shaka Khan wants to know if you want, if, if, you know, if you want a gig. Uh, yeah, I got, I'm, I got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so it turned out that the first gig with her was at the Hollywood Bowl. So I was already in L.A. And uh, I said, right, we'll be there in a week. And... And then that started. And, uh, man, Shaka was, uh, she is so incredible. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. Incredible, man. Yeah. I mean, and, that- and I grew up, I grew up on those records. I grew up listening to Steve Ferroni play those. I, I know those songs lit by lit. So when I got to the band, they were, they, you know, the bass player who, who basically, Melvin Davis, would, would play all that Anthony Jackson stuff through Vader. It was like, it was a perfect marriage. He was like, oh, yeah, you want this, you, you playing what I'm playing. Cause I'm playing like the record. You playing like the yeah, man. Let's do it. So that was that was really a great time. That that's, was really a great time. Well, I mean, um, I, playing with Shaka. I mean, that's got to be oh my god. I mean, I just can't even imagine. Now, I I've got to ask this, okay, and not to interrupt your your train of thought here, that's but all right. but. I, I have heard, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I have heard that you came within an inch of being the drummer in Guns N' Roses. Is there any truth to that rumor? <laughs> yeah. I, I, <laughs> it, was, it was later that year, because I, I toured with Chaka, and then I went back to Italy. And while I was in Italy, the phone call came from, uh, I think the guy's name was Phil. He was like a childhood friend of, of Axel's. And he was in the band at the time. And I think he was the MD. And uh, he left a message on my voicemail, and I called him from Italy. And he said, hey, we're, you know, we're, we're, at, we're at Rumbo in North Hollywood. You know, we're not going anywhere. Uh, are you coming to town for NAM? I said, I, said, I, I am now, yeah. <laughs> wow. So, uh, so I, I actually go to, go to the NAM show. And this bodyguard that I recognize, I think his, I can't remember his name right now, uh, but he sees, hey man, how's it going? He, he had done security for Paul when I, when I was working for him. And um, I said, hey man, what are you doing there, man? man I'm, I'm, I'm with, I'm with old, old dude over here. He said he wants to say hello. I said, who is it? And he looked at me, it's Axel, dude. So <laughs> <laughs> Axel has got like baggy jeans on, and like some Converse and a hoodie. You can't tell it's, it's Axl Rose. He just looked like some skater pop. And uh, he walks up and looks like, hey, man, I'm looking forward to, to having you out at Rumbo. You know, real excited. Oh, well, yeah, man, all right, great. You know, so I go that night, and he must have got caught up in something because he didn't show up. So the whole night, it was, it was I, I must have played Welcome to the Jungle 
a man 15 times. <laughs> and then I think we played also uh, It's So Easy. And um, maybe Mr. Brown style. And I, I was getting down, man. I was getting down with, um, what's his name? Robin Fink. I had known him from uh, when he was with Nine Inch Nails. Good guitar player. Great guitar player. Yeah. And so he was, he was slated to be in the band also. And um, it really was kind of, um, it was a prophylactic measure because they weren't sure if Brock, uh, Brock Josh Freeze was going to do the gig or not. Oh, okay. So, I, I, so that's I, what happened. Is that Dave uh, Abruzzisi <laughs> yeah. had had the gig, and then I think that also might have been around the time that that Josh started working with uh, Sublime. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, well, but, um, the, the the timeline makes a little more sense to me now, but you know, I, yeah. I I've heard that rumor, you know, for years, and you know, I always thought to myself, man, th- how great it would have been, you know, for you to be in Guns and Roses to give it a little bit of swing, you know. I mean, I just that's just how I always, uh, you know, uh, uh, I guess imagined it in my head. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, we had a great time, man. I mean, I, you know, it, it's uh, we had fun. He, Axel showed up just as I was leaving. I was <laughs> headed out the door. Oh, hey, man. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry, I missed it. How, how, how was it? Did you have fun? Well, yeah, man. You, you, you guys can play, man. Uh, you know, he, he said they, they said you, while I was there, they asked me to, they put up some tracks for me to play on. I might be on. Chinese democracy and not even know it. <laughs> <laughs> you and every other drummer that ever exactly. lived in LA County. So, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it, it got that far. They, they had like 10, eight app machines stacked up and they were like, Hey, well, you want to, you want to try another different thing? Sure. I'm here, man. But by the end of the night, I had like two, maybe three new blood blisters on my hands. Man. Oh, so <laughs> you, yeah. So you were shedding with those guys too, then I, but I couldn't, I couldn't come weak. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, I I mean, just what a legendary career if you stop there, you know, I mean, it, 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 <laughs> if you did nothing after that, what a legendary career. But, you know, I, I want to delve in a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm going to fast forward just a little bit. But around 2005, you started working with the guys in Soul Asylum and it re- yeah. recorded a fantastic record with Dave and the boys. And, you know, I told you earlier, you know, Dave Perner is one of my all time favorite songwriters. I love Soul Asylum. And that's what got me hip to your playing. Of course, I knew you played with Prince, but I, I wasn't hip to you as a drummer until I heard, you know, I, I guess it was the the Silver Linings record. Um, yeah. So mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about uh, about that, because you would not have been an obvious choice, I wouldn't think, for Soul Asylum. Well, they didn't think so either. I mean, honestly, somebody got at me about it. Uh, their manager at the time called me and said, hey, I want to put your hat in the ring to play on the Soul Asylum record. They were starting to mount up mount their uh, their return, and they started to try, try try to get things together in 2001. And uh, and, it, um, and they, uh, the dude told me, he said, I tried to get your name in the hat, but, you know, they don't, they, they're not sure you, you're, the, you're the right kind of player. They're, I mean, it's, it, they, they don't know whether you play rock like they need you to play it. 
I yeah. said, okay, well, that's cool. I mean, I don't have any, you know, they should get whoever they're comfortable with. I mean, I, I, if you play with Prince, you play everything. I'm, I'm, I'm a good Westerner just like them. I grew up on classic album rock. I, I know how to play like Don Bonham. I know how to play like Bill Ward. I know how to play like Simon Kirk. If you tell me what you want, I can give it to you. I can play like Charlie. I can play like Ringo. <laughs> right and on. I rock what they want, you yeah. know? Yeah. And so the gig escaped me, you know, but for some reason they didn't get things together either. So the call came around again in 04. And he said, well, they're thinking like they might, might like to actually go with you as, as the drummer on the record. Well, okay, well, you know, whatever's clever, you know? And uh, at that time I was not hurting for work because I had um, started recording these jazz records um, with this French woodwinds player named, uh, oh boy, uh, why is his name? Oh, Michel Fortal. Okay. Who's uh, most famous for traveling around the world and playing the Mozart concertos. But he made these jazz records from time to time. And so he was slated to come to Minneapolis and, uh, and record this record. And it was um, me and Sonny. Sonny is basically my, my musical companion. The drums and bass, we go everywhere together. Everywhere we can. And... Um, and uh, also, uh, Vernon Reed came to do came to Minneapolis to do the tracking. Wow! And uh, also, um, Tony Hymas, um, English keyboard player, yeah. played on like the Jeff Beck guitar. Is it Guitar Station? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's a bunch of bad dudes, man. And um, the 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 recording of the album went so well, and the record sold so well in France that we ended up going over there and doing shows. And um, that spun off into a, a couple other things that we did. So I was living in this sort of kind of pseudo-jazz world <laughs> for the years in between while I was still being musical director for Georgia and Italy. So my time overseas was just compounding. So by the end of 03, I was, I was done. I was ready to do something else anyway. So that's what I'm saying about the Soul Asylum call coming that next year. And, but they were, you know, they were still probably nine months out before they wanted to even start really rehearsing. They had, they had demos to sift through and they were still trying to find, you know, proper representation and a, and a label and, uh, it was all of that. So it took some time. And, um, I guess, uh, that's, so that's what happened in between. And they weren't really sure until we got into rehearsal, um, that I was the, that I was the cat they were looking for. And uh second day, I think we were playing closer to the stars, and Bruno just stops and says, Wait, wait a minute, man. <laughs> he just turns <laughs> and says, Why don't you just effing join the band? Why don't you just effing join the band, man? Nice. And I sat there, and I took maybe five seconds. I said, Okay. You know, and he tells me after that, he said, you know how long I had to chase Sterling to get him in my band, Sterling Campbell? <laughs> like, you know how much sweet talk I had to give him? To, to, to just, like, I, listen, I, I'm, I'm, if, if I want something, then it's, it's, it's all gravy. I, I want this. I, I want to be working with people who come from where I come from, who have the work ethic I got, and, you know, and, and I'm ready to, to prove once again to the, to the whole world. I can play a lot of music, but playing rock music, that's, that's second nature for me. I could do that all day. 
Yeah. Well, you know, and, you know, I want to preface this next comment by saying, you know, my show is apolitical. You know, I mean, we, we don't really talk about politics much, but you mentioned your, you know, kind of weekly Facebook live thing that you do. Um, you know, being that you are an activist, you know, and and you do speak out on, you know, hot button topics, you know, Dave Perner is obviously somebody that kind of writes in that same vein. You know, he's a, he's a social social justice guy, you know. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, and, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it, I, I, I'm wondering, you know, is it a match made in heaven? I'm, I'm assuming it probably is. You know, I'm assuming he will come to you and say, Michael, you know, what do you think about this? I, I'm assuming that you're a pretty good sounding board for his songwriting. You're so right. He, he, I mean, even just as just, I mean, let me first clarify that uh, politics doesn't just, it's not just like bipartisan all of that BS. It's not the definition of politics is really like how things work in relationship to each other. Like it's not when I, when I say, when we say music politics, we're talking about how things work together or don't work together and how come sure. like the politics that go, what you have, the negotiations that happen even within just the social construct. So don't get me wrong. I don't, I'm, it's not a bipartisan or partisan oriented endeavor. It's really more has been more about human rights than anything lately. Right. Well, yeah, obviously. And, yeah. you, you know, whatnot. Yes. so, you know, and, and look, I, I don't want this to, you know, evolve into a discussion about anything other than music. But, you know, you are a, a proud black man playing in a white dude band kind of thing. You know what I mean? So I, I'm just wondering how how that dynamic plays itself out. You know, I mean, I didn't think anything of it when they said, hey, Michael Bland is our new drummer in Soul Asylum. I was just like, absolutely, right on. Well, you, know, well, you shouldn't have thought anything about it because they had two other black dudes before me. They had Sterling and they had um, uh, Ian Mussington. Of, um, of course, yeah. yeah. So, but I mean, it's... I, I just wonder how that dynamic, you know, you all are all Minneapolis guys and what a great scene you all grew up in up there. But I, I just wonder how the, the 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 subject matter that Dave typically chases, I, I'm curious how he uses you as a sounding board. Okay, I'll tell you what. I mean, it can be as mundane as just, why do black people say y'all? Where does that come from? <laughs> you know? Yeah, right, right. Sometimes they'll just have, you know, just these, 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 he thinks they're goofy little questions. I'm like, no, nah, man, they, they, there are no, there are no stupid questions. You know, like if, if you really, you really want me to tell you, I'll tell you. And, and like, um, what was it? I can't remember the word, but it actually did not originate with black people, but it was something that the Irish used to say. I hunted I down a phrase for him. I can't remember what it was now. But, um, you know, um, actually, uh, Dave and I have been kicking around the idea of doing a, a an album based on um, the Green Book. The Green Book is, um, actually, my parents had the Green Book. The Green Book told you where was safe to get gas, 
yeah. or, 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 you know, or food or lodging if you're, if you're traveling throughout the continental United States. Right. Um, without, you know, being told you where to go that was safe if you were black, basically. Yeah. And, um, the, yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, Bert was the one who brought it up. And I was like, you know what? It's time for us to join forces, Dave. And actually, this, this could be a very important work. We haven't started yet. But it's, I think part of the reason I decided to do my, my, uh, broadcast, um, is I needed to really sort, sort my, my head out about these things. Because while some progress has been made, if you can still kill a black man in the middle of the street <laughs> by, by putting your knee on his neck and he's cuffed in front of people watching and even people, uh, you know, filming it. Yeah. I'm like, how far have we really come in this, in, in this space and time? Like Stephen Wonder said. Yeah, it, it's, it's like how far have we really come? And Dave Parner is—you'll is, uh, be happy to know—he's the authentic. He's the real deal, man. He cares about people. He cares about right and wrong. He cares about—I uh, mean, it, it's funny because uh, in Minnesota, you have kind of two sorts of white people. You know, those who give you the Minnesota nice which is kind of the brush off, you know, it's kind of this medium sort of tone uh, of tolerance that, you know, people have misinterpreted for being, oh, there's Minnesota nice, that means, oh, hey, that, that, but they're really nice, you know, but actually not. It's a thinly veiled attempt at tolerance is what Minnesota nice is. And then you have those who are, uh, are um, uh, also, well, some, you have those who are also, who, on the flip side of that, you have people who are uh, inundated with white guilt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, look, I, you know, I grew up in the South. You know, I'm a Kentuckian, right? And, and you know, the South has its own set of, of problems, you know, racially and otherwise. But when I was, you know, at the age uh, at which you joined Prince's band, I moved to Memphis, Tennessee and immersed myself in the blues culture of Memphis and playing on Beale Street. And I'll just I'll just tell you right now, man, I was one of the only white guys trying to chase, (laughs) you know, blues music in Memphis, Tennessee in the mid 90s. You know, I, I was the guy that stuck out. And it gave me a new appreciation and understanding of of what a big deal race really does play in the music business. Uh, well, it plays a, a it plays a different role in the music business than it does in the average social construct. Yes, I mean, uh, I mean, racism it it it, it, it sorry, our cats in heat. Oh no, he's, it's all good, man. I've got cats, dogs, all that. It's it just makes it real, brother. <laughs> ow, ow, ow. <laughs> he's mad about it, boy, because we don't let it go outside. <laughs> it's all good, man. But um, uh, it's racism pervades every corner of, of of our existence in the United States of America, and and the terrible truth is that essentially, I mean, I'm, I'm about to. You know, I'm, I'm about to, the few of your listeners are going to fall off after I say this, but I got to say it. That, first, let me preface it by saying being racist has nothing to do with your intent. It has nothing to do with 
whether you like somebody or not. Like people who are racist, a lot of them are unconsciously so. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, oh yeah. Like you can't help but be racist growing up in this country because of the white supremacist power structure. I'm just I'm just telling you what it is. I'm not even I'm not trying to be incendiary, but it's like the matrix. If you grew up in it, it's all you know. And until you're educated otherwise, you're a racist. And that's that's the bottom line. That's the real truth. Is that people are racist in ways that they don't even understand. You know? I, I and, do uh, know. And and I think a lot of it comes down to what lens do you view anything from? Whether it's whether it's politics, race relations, music, drumming, I, I don't care what subject you're talking about, but you always put your own personal lens spin on that subject, right? I mean, if you can, if you haven't been, you know, beaten to a pulp by your racist granddad or dad, or if it's not hasn't been pushed into you in your environment, you know, you don't, you're not born racist. It's it's the conditioning that comes with your environment. I mean, it, it's, that's the thing. And I, I don't even, I, it, it's, it must seem to some white people to be absurd that they can be held responsible <laughs> for unknown, you know, the ways in which they've been uh, uh, unknowingly antagonistic or use their privilege, which they don't even, depending on the person you speak to, they don't even believe in white privilege. They believe that they got what they got because they did what they did. And the reality is that if, if you live within a Eurocentric system, you got to let up. Whether you use it or not is up to you. But the bottom line is you have a, a wealth spring of opportunity that people like me will never get to. We can't even get a chance. Yeah. And I think acknowledging that reality is hard for a lot of white people because they want to believe that we really did this on our own. But I'm thinking to myself, you didn't even build this country by yourself. You, you, <laughs> you outsourced to Africa and had it built for free. So, <laughs> well, well I, you know, I mean, I've said this, I don't know how many times. Yeah, I mean, you're spot on, but I've said this, I don't know how many times, you know, my family is Irish. You know, we were Irish immigrants and I've seen all the signs help one. No Irish need apply. And, you know, my ancestors ended up building railroads and bridges and roads and fences because that's the only jobs they could get in this country. Right. And, and, you know, so my lens is a little different than someone else's. And, you know, I, I think this is a good conversation. You know, I, I, we've gotten way off the drumming path, but. Uh, man, I, the it, reality is that it's, well, I mean, sorry, go ahead and finish your point first and then I'll, I'll swing it back. Well, no, no. I mean, I was just going to say, you know, it's a good conversation and it's timely and, you know, it's time that we get beyond that stuff. You know, I mean, Absolutely. It just, it, it's mm-hmm. just time we get beyond it because. You know, I, I, I hear all the time, you know, people saying, but it's not ignorance, but, but that's exactly what it is. Yeah, I'm not calling anybody stupid. It's you're uneducated about the problem. And until everybody gets hip and gets educated, we're going to have the same problem. Right. And, and the problem is, is that in a lot of cases, it's ignorant, but even more cases, it's willful, willful, willful ignorance is really the battle now. 
is a lot of people don't want to accept the truth when it, when it, when it's in front of their eyes. They, they don't want to believe what they're being told. Yeah. And I'm not even going to say that's, I mean, that could be anybody. A lot of people just got trouble with digesting, di- digesting the facts of the situation. They don't want to hear it. Somebody, you know, it's, um, already the, the, even the news cycle, it's like you, if, if you hear about George Floyd right now, it's just kind of in passing. Although I think I, I heard that they, uh, they just released some information saying that, uh, he was, what was happening in that cop car was he was having a panic attack because he had been shot before by police officers. Um, so, um, but to, to, to go back to what I was talking about, Dave Berner, uh, actually, I, I'm not the only, uh, black dude in the band. <laughs> Winston Roy, who, uh, lost out to Daryl Jones for the Rolling Stones gig by just a fraction. Sure. Um, has been playing with the band on and off since 2008 or nine. Right. And he and I would have just good giggles because we played some Southern States and some places out East where uh, a a significant faction of the crowd won't even look at us. (laughs) (laughs) Like they just, they keep their eyes on Dave and they're like, they don't want to make eye contact. And me and Winston are just laughing about it. And it just bums Dave out so much. Yeah, he he just it's it's really it's sad for him. He just just I mean he wrote a song on his uh, solo record called um, Faces and Names, uh, called uh, What Are People Going to Start Treating People Right? Yeah, and uh, so that's really what's in his heart. In his heart, he wants to see everybody get together and and, and you know and work together. Because in this particular situation that we have here in the United States right now, it's going to take everybody. Sure it is. It's going to take everybody. I, black people can't do it alone. White, white people gotta, have to get involved. If, if you believe in human rights for everybody, if you believe in equal uh, and fair treatment uh, 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 under the law, I mean, then, then don't stand for it. You've got to be more than just an observer. You have to be an anti-racist at this point. You gotta, if you say something, you've got to see something. We've got to cooperate if we really want to get past all this. Yeah, man, I, truer words have never been spoken. And, you know, I, I, look, I think it's amazing that we all, as drummers, have a platform. And, you know, you can use your platform to talk about whatever it is you want, but right is right, in my opinion. and. Uh-huh. I respect the hell out of you, Michael, for using your platform to help with that process, getting everybody involved. And to quote, you know, one of my favorite Soul Asylum songs, Black Gold, nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd. (laughs) Yes. You you know what I'm saying? And, you you know, if, if, you know, I, I don't know that this moves the needle for anybody on this program, but. You know, I think it's a good conversation to have, and I appreciate you being open and having the conversation with me. I think it's great. Well, you know what? I mean, <laughs> it's funny, man. Uh, I, I, I'll tell you something. I, uh, uh, I, I haven't told anybody about this, but I, well, I told a couple people, but I intend to go on an interview and start speaking about it. But um, I was, I was. <laughs> I was listening to uh, a song by Prince called Mountains. 
the song he wrote with Wendy and Lisa. Okay. And uh, and I, I, I just turned on YouTube and turned the video on. And um, somewhere midway, it's like I started listening. It's like he started talking to me. <laughs> he, started, he started talking to me and saying, uh, basically, uh, like, you know what? We've talked all over this planet. We, we did things that, that mere mortals, some mere mortals can't even dream of. We, we, you've met, you've met people who have influenced you. You've met people who you've, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because we, we I, almost anybody I wanted to meet in this business, I got to. And I didn't understand until, <laughs> until I started talking and said, life is about playing hard and working hard. Don't you realize that you've, you were, you were chosen. You, you've, you've worked in, in, in the highest area of your field. You, you've, you've, you've traveled the world. You've brought people joy. You know? Like, that's what it's about. It's like, we had fun, didn't we? Like, <laughs> it was really like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I realized in that moment, because uh, he was a complex person. And, um, but what I, what, I, what I realized in that moment was that what he really was was a, a, a kid who refused to grow up. And uh, I remember somebody saying something to me a long time ago, like, you ever watch a kid when they play with, like a, uh, with a truck or a toy? Or I mean, I don't know if they do much of that anymore. Now it's probably Sega Genesis or whatever. <laughs> but, but the way that a kid plays... They play with total seriousness. They're totally in there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. That's what music was like for Prince. It was, it was, it was enjoyment, but it was, he was really focused and concentrated on, you know, imbuing the music with his spirit, you know, with the eternal part of him, you know, which not everybody, every, not everybody can be so honest with themselves and access themselves so deeply. That's why he was special. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, for me, I, I, you know, he was, while he was probably, you know, driving at, in his own mind, it was like, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. He had a short attention span. He got bored easily. Me, I, I, I've been a lot more cautious <laughs> in my life. And while we fought for the same things musically as, as two people, as personalities, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, we couldn't have been. Uh, we couldn't, be, we couldn't have been any closer than we were. I mean, I, I, I didn't really know how much I loved him until he died. And I started going through all that in my head. Yeah. But uh, the, the reality is that I, I went on a journey that I only could have taken with him. And you're talking about a, a dude who grew up, he totally grew up in North Minneapolis with, uh, you know, with very little, you know, I like, he didn't come from any kind of money at all. He had very little, he was poor. He told me, he said, you don't know, you don't know what it's like to be broke until you stand, if you stand at the bus stop outside of McDonald's and all you can do is smell the fields. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, like, man. He really, he suffered for it, but he gave himself completely to the music and it, and, and, and he transformed his, his luck, his karma, his whatever you want to call it, transformed yeah. into prosperity. And that can only be done through hard work. And I just want to say, for musicians everywhere, if, if you love music, 
then, then give your entire self to it. If you really want to do it, because it's not really for everybody. Man, I've thrown water on more people trying to get lessons from me in my life. You know, and, and you know, uh, God bless me. I, I haven't had to, I, I don't really want to teach. And I, I haven't had to yet. I haven't financially been so crippled that i got to start doing something. I don't really have a heart to do. But this business is vicious, man. You can, you, if, if you're not in it for love, forget it. Don't do it. Do something else. You want money? Work on Wall Street. You know, do something, you know, be a realtor. You know, buy property. And don't just, you know, don't just play with music, man. The, 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 the source defines music as the speech of the angels. The speech of angels. Like, this is a high calling, you know? Right and on. in that moment I had, whether I was either, either hallucinating or not, the person was explaining me, to me that very aspect. It's like, we're working in the highest order. What we do pleases God. What we do brings joy to everybody. We fucked everywhere, man. Did we have fun? <laughs> right on, man. Right on. You know, and that's all I'm, all I'm trying to do, to, to do for the rest of my career is, is I, I, I'm giving myself permission to enjoy, you know? Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I think that's the most important thing. And, you know, I mean, I, I've said that a, a million times, you know, it's it's great to be the best or really good at, at your instrument or whatever the case may be. But that's only, you know, that's a small fraction of it. A lot of it is, you know, the hang, you know, being able to get along with other human beings, as you said, trapped on the metal tube. Right. I mean, yes. You, you, you got to be able to function in close quarters and get along with people and, and be a decent mm-hmm. human. I mean, that's, that's all part of it as well. Um, yeah, but, but can I say this though? I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. Go it's right ahead. Love is what makes you tolerant in times when you need to be tolerant. Yeah. If you're not doing, making music for the right reason, then it ain't enough. But I know what I got with Turner. I need him and he needs me. And we need Jeremy, and we need Ryan, and we need Janine, and we need Winston. We need each other, and we're all fighting for the same thing. Right on, man. Right on. Well, so now I know that the the, the Soul Asylum tour was cut short due to COVID. Sure. You know, I, it, and obviously we don't know when live music will ever come back. It, it will eventually. But I mean, what is on the to-do list for the Soul Asylum gang? And you, along with that, what is on the to-do list for Michael Bland? Well, let me first just say that we did release a new record in April. Right. So if you need a new Soul Asylum fix, Hurry Up and Wait is available at all streaming. You know, wherever you go to stream, you can go to soulasylum.com and buy the record and a whole other, I mean, any of the swag. Any of the, you know, any of the merch. We got pretty cool merch, actually. So please go to www.soulasylum.com and shop away. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, uh, right now we have one gig on the book, and it's in Aberdeen, South Dakota. I'm uh, like the 15th of September. I, I suspect that it's going to go away because this COVID thing is, is wrapping up again. Yeah. But right now that's all we got, man, other than doing... um. Uh, Dave and Ryan have been doing these things called the quarantine sessions on YouTube and uh, Facebook. And they're great. Uh, they're fantastic. Yeah. 
So that's how Turner has been spending his time. He's reading the book that he just put out, basically <laughs> the last ass lyrics book, which is is uh, all lyrics and short stories about the songs. Yeah. So go get the book too. Yeah. The book is awesome. Um, but I mean, right now he's it's on its music stand. He's reading the lyrics out of the book. <laughs> There's so many songs. He's, they've really been switching it up. So. That's how, how, how he's been spending his time. I've been, I do a little production work here and there, and, and you know, I, I'm, I'm co-writing with a, an artist in England right now, and so I've been staying busy, but I, I, I haven't really left the house. Um, uh, I'm gonna get back into doing some sessions towards the end of this month, okay. it looks like. So, and that's what's gonna happen for me, and uh, in the meantime, we're working on a way to maybe stream a concert like a, a full-on concert with Terrell Salem. Uh, you know, it's just, there are many options on how to monetize that. And we want to go through the, the, the best service and get the best possible sound going. So we're actually going to be experimenting with putting all that together this month. Okay, and uh, cool. maybe sometime in August, if, if, you know, if, if we sound all right, and if we get, you know, get the, get the, the mix that's getting streamed out, if we get it all dialed up, uh, we, we may have something to, 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 you know, we, we might have a show together to play for people online in August. I'm hoping for that. Yeah, anyway. man, that, that'll be great. That, that'll be fantastic. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's a new world, man. It really is, you know, for musicians, yeah. we, we got to figure out how to make a little bit of money, you know, to replace the, the lost touring revenue. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And, that, and that little extra bonus, uh, that little extra government bonus with the unemployment, that's gone now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's like, oh, I'm going to do some, hope. I got to do some hoping now, boy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's time for all of us to get on our hustle. There's no doubt about it, man. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the, the bank wants that money. That, yes, they do. Um, Michael, <laughs> I, I want to be respectful of your time. I've kept you a little bit over what we had promised, but I want to thank you sincerely for taking time to come on the drum shuffle. We really do appreciate it. And man, it goes without saying, you are welcome here anytime. If you got something going on, come on, we'll talk about it. We'll have a drummer hang. Okay. I mean, uh, I, I appreciate you, you let me run my mouth for, 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 I didn't intend to have so much to say, but I, I never know. Uh, every, every situation does not, uh, I, I, there's not so much latitude in every interview situation. So, I mean, thanks for listening, man. I, I took you places you probably weren't expecting to go, but, uh, but I appreciate you for it. Oh, no, man. Um, it's, it's all good. I mean, that's what this yeah. show is about is to bring drummers on and talk about life. We want to know, you know, I, I, this show could be about, hey, what was that fill you played at two minutes and 38 seconds of this song? I, nobody cares except yeah, other drummers. I don't, yeah, I don't care either. Good. I'm glad it didn't turn out to be one of those. Right. But if I had to explain that Diamonds and Pearls fill one more time, <laughs> I'm going to blow a basket. I don't care. It was just something I chose to play in the moment and it worked. I don't know what else to say about it. Yeah, right on. You know, but you know what my goal is, is to get you guys and gals on, you know, these great drummers and we want to understand where you're coming from. Right. And if, if we understand how you came up and what got you into it, it just gives a little bit more perspective on the music, in my opinion. And, you know, I approach it as what would 13 year old Jamie want to know from Michael Bland. So I, I come from a very innocent place. So no matter where these conversations go, I think it's good. So thank you for being so open and honest. 
You're so welcome, Jamie. Thank you for, for asking me to come on. Like I said, I, I get a handful of people coming, but they're, they're usually not hopeful. I don't know why people are so uh, scared of me. Man, I'm not scared of you at all because I know that you have a kind heart. It goes without saying. I mean, I, I just, I know that, you know, I mean, I've read well, you, you got right at me and said, Hey, you want to do this? And yeah, pretty much it's a yes or no. You're not scared to hear the word. No. And that's, that's an important facet. Yeah, it is. Uh, just as a human, like, don't be afraid of rejection. You know, you can't get it. You can't get anything from anybody unless you ask them. Hey man, so, I, 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 I've never said this on this show before, but I'll share it with you. I actually wrote to Ringo Starr's publicist and tried to get Ringo on this podcast. And they were like, yeah, you, you know, <laughs> we're, we're going to pass. And I knew that would be the case, but guess what? Like Wayne Gretzky said, you miss every single shot you don't take. Yeah. And here's what's funny is that, have you been watching the, um, that, uh, Michael Jordan, um, uh, the, 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 the documentary, I think it's called The Lost Dance. Yeah, I've, I've caught some of it. I haven't seen all of it yet, but I've caught some okay. bits and pieces. Well, he said something to one of his co-players one time. He, he shot from, like, the sideline and got it. And he, 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 like, he was standing next to one of the other players. And he was like, man, I, I, I'd be nervous to take a shot so far out. And Michael Jordan was like, how am I going to get nervous about a shot I haven't taken yet? <laughs> That's right, man. Like, why, why get nervous about it? Take the shot. Yeah. Go see what happens, man. Well, I mean, that's just so relevant in so many different things. You know, it, it's, I, you know, look, I know that I'm never going to be the drummer of Soul Asylum, right? I, I know that. Well, you Do could be. I know it deep in my heart, but one of these days you may retire and I may reach out to Dave and be like, Dave, I'm here. I'm available. My, you really, you willing to relocate? <laughs> absolutely. But my, my point being, if you don't, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. And when I reached out to you, you immediately were like, yeah, man, let's do it. So thank you yeah. so much. Not at all, man. I, I, I appreciate you asking and I, and I had a good time. And, um, I'll certainly reach out to you uh, next time I have something to share. But I think I, I, got, I got plugs in for everything during this broadcast, so I'm all right. <laughs> Good deal, man. Well, we'll have okay. you back anytime, brother. Fantastic. Thank you, Jamie. All right, man. We'll talk to you soon. All right. All right, guys and girls, that is going to wrap up episode 108 of the Drum Shuffle. As always, I thank you sincerely for tuning in. We simply cannot do this show or be successful with this podcast without each and every one of you doing so each and every week. If you want to help the drum shuffle out, the biggest thing you can do for us is share a link with a friend. Just say, hey, check out this show. I think you'll like it. It helps us more than you'll ever know, uh, and we certainly, sincerely appreciate it. We have a ton of great interviews coming up here over the next few weeks, so go ahead and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you use to listen into the Drum Shuffle. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Noah Levy uh, from Brian Setzer's band. Uh, Noah is a fantastic drummer, again, from the Minneapolis area. You'll see a theme going here over the next couple of weeks, so we're really excited to bring that to you, and I don't want you to miss that episode, so go ahead and hit that subscribe button. If you're so inclined, leave us a rating or a review, hit the thumbs up button, wherever you listen, 
give us a star rating. It helps us to continue to grow as an independent show. We don't ask for money. We do ask for your attention. So thanks so much for that. Uh, as always, we answer every single email that we get here at the Drum Shuffle. The email address for us is the Drum Shuffle Podcast at gmail.com. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com. And of course, you can find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. Everybody, stay safe, stay healthy. Let me know how I can help you. I'm always glad to do so. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.